You can support the Double Loop Podcast by contributing at patreon.com slash double loop podcast. Thank you to our supporters, and we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. Greetings to Odenton, Maryland. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. Uh, Odenton, I guess that's about halfway between Baltimore and D.C. So, uh, hello to uh, our East Coast people out there. Uh, Glenn, how you been up? How you been doing lately? Well, pretty good. It was a good week, Mother's Day weekend. So, yes, spent time with yes. the family, the kids, breakfast in bed. Not for me, for okay. for my wife, of course. That would <laughs> wow, be nice. that would have been super, super special. <laughs> that would have been great. <laughs> like wow, Glenn. Wow. I, I have my uh, wife make me breakfast in bed on Mother's Day. Right. Yeah. <laughs> or and your mom, your wife, and your right, exactly. So, uh, did you guys do anything special besides breakfast? Uh, well, actually, uh, well, yeah, um, spent some time at the ER with uh, my mother-in-law, and uh, oh. she, she wasn't doing very well. Um, but then afterwards, in the evening, we took the family to go see the Captain America Three Civil War. Yes, another Marvel movie. So uh, we we, uh, we did that this weekend. Okay, so don't tell me about it. I won't tell you about Game of Thrones because I know you're on a height uh, waiting for this next week to watch Game of Thrones. Correct. Um, and uh, so I always want to talk to you about Game of Thrones. <laughs> but um, and don't tell me about Captain America. We were planning on going to Captain America at the in the evening. Uh, we went earlier in the day up on a hike up to um, a nice creek with waterfalls and stuff uh, up north of the Phoenix area. And got caught in a um, in a thunderstorm, and it hailed on us, wow. and yeah, it, it it was it was ended up in a in a muddy mess. But it was a nice hike. Uh, before that, it was just on our way out um, that we didn't quite make it in time, and the storm rolled in. Is the rain due to just the season, or the altitude you guys were at, or even the location? Um, I mean, it's still it was still a pretty deserty area. It was, but it's an area where. Um, down in like the creek beds and the river beds, it's more green, so it's kind of that in between, um, semi-forested but still has cactus around kind of area. Uh, and it was just the same storm that hit LA, um, on like Thursday and Friday had just blown through, uh, you know, uh, parts of northern and central Arizona, uh, you know, a couple days later. So usually this is our very dry season, but, um, we happened to get lucky and get some rain on that day. Wow! Uh, but it was uh, it was cool. Um, you know, it's, waterfalls are are fairly uncommon in Arizona, but uh, so uh, finding one um, down a little bit more of a uh, bumpy dirt road than I expected um, was still nice. Uh, and that's that's my uh, that's our tradition. My wife likes to every Mother's Day go on a hike somewhere, so. We roll up the kids, uh, bribe them with promises of something so they won't complain about going outside and hiking, uh, <laughs> and then um, you know find someplace cooler and greener uh, to uh, to walk around for a bit. Yeah, that's very cool. So, um, uh, so I wanted to share something with listeners and a quick shout out to again uh, Canadian friends. Um, so there is a fingerprint examiner in Canada by the name of Mark Rittersgaard, and uh, he had 
I had run into him at, at the II conference, and he had said that uh, there is a Langenberg, Saskatchewan, in Canada. Saskatchewan <laughs> is a provi- uh, province there. And there's right. a town, Langenberg, which surprised me because I'd never heard that. There's a Langenberg in Germany where my family hails from. And right. there's, and depending on the spelling of Langenberg, I know what area, if it's, what area in in that town they're from, depending on if they spell oh, wow. B-U-R-G or B-E-R-G. It's very specific. So the B-U-R-G is, is like my line. And the town in Canada is spelled Langenberg, B-U-R-G. And they, <laughs> he was able to send me some, some gifts from the town, uh, like a, <laughs> a coffee mug and a magnet and a pen. And it was really, really pretty cool. And I thought that was a very nice gesture. So I wanted to thank Mark. Uh, I know Mark uh, listens to the podcast and uh, just wanted to uh, thank him for that. And very, very cool. Um, they were going to steal like street signs or town signs, <laughs> but I think law enforcement stealing something like that would probably not be uh, looked upon very kindly. But I do, right. I, I do appreciate the effort. Um, but yeah, it was it was really cool because like, again, I don't know what my family's connection to this town is, but somewhere along the way, one of my uh, distant relatives must have gone gone there. Uh, that's really cool. Yeah. Um, uh... Hopefully you uh, get to travel northwards and and uh, I mean how far north is is Langenberg, Saskatchewan? It's pretty far north. Uh, you'd have to go to <laughs> Montana, hang a right, and then drive for about six hours. It, it's not really on the way to anywhere. Right? Is that what you're saying? Right? It is not. It is not. Okay. Uh, you. I think you hit Bismarck, and yeah, you pretty much drive for five hours, maybe six, north of Bismarck, Mon- uh, North Dakota, edge of Montana. Right. Right. No, I'm seeing it here. I, I pulled up on Google Maps. Um, it looks like it's right on actually the border between mm-hmm. uh, uh, Saskatchewan and Manitoba. Okay, you know, you can go through Winnipeg instead. I, I'd be. <laughs> Um, that'd be just as easy. Yeah. Go through Fargo, Winnipeg, and then on your way to there. Um, yeah, it's probably what? Okay. 16 hours from, from me. Yeah. I could do it. Actually, if you were going, happened to be driving on a, you know, family road trip or whatever from Minneapolis, St. Paul to Edmonton, it's totally on the way. (laughs) That's true. That is true. (laughs) So, well... Anyway, um, I would recommend that as a summer road trip, if you ever do, uh, go ahead and, and do that. But anyway, <laughs> let's uh, let's let's open up the email box here uh, tonight. Glenn, does that sound good? Yes, sounds great. All right, so we we've gotten a few more uh, emails about the uh, making a murderer uh, episode, and talk about you know the uh, the topic that just keeps on giving. You know, <laughs> we. Uh, we're getting lots of runtime from uh, from this, um, but the first comes from our friend down Australia way, uh, Jan uh, Whitaker, uh, wrote in. Um, you know, we've mentioned her for a couple episodes now, uh, but she wrote in um, with some general questions, uh, really more focusing on the firearm side of things. So I know we usually talk about fingerprints, but I thought. Just with a generic forensic background, we can maybe try to answer at least a couple of her questions. And uh, she 
she you know, led us to a website that has a ton of photos from the case, uh, including photos of the um, the comparison of the uh, the rifle and the bullet found in the garage. You know, if we've listened to other episodes, this is the same kind of thing we've talked about before. And she was asking about generally what kind of standard is there for determining that this is a match between the test fire and the the bullet that they actually found in the garage. Right. Um, so, Glenn, did you have a chance to look at the, these images? I did. I did. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, she was just, you know first kind of thing was asking. Well, do we want to um, show the like send listeners to the site oh, yeah, so yeah. That they can see the images for themselves as they'd like That's to look a good at. good point. So if you go to stevenaverycase.org slash photos, so S-T-E-V-E-N, Avery, A-V-E-R-Y, case, C-A-S-E dot org slash photos, that's a slash is the one next to the shift button. Um, there's all the pictures are there. You go about, I don't know, a little more than halfway down the page, and you can see the, the comparison. So the, the ones that she's specifically talking about are the comparisons to item FL. And, um, so the first, you know, I responded to her, but uh, over email, but also in general over the podcast for anyone else out there listening, um, the how much question is, is one of the ones we get constantly. And that's not just in, uh, fingerprints, but also in the other comparison disciplines, firearms, uh, question documents, uh, footwear, tire tracks, all these kinds of things. You know, what, what, what's enough? Uh, so I talked about, um, you know, in general, at least for fingerprints, how <clears throat> that's a difficult question to answer because of some other variables that come into play. You know, we've talked about this before a lot on the show, but, you know, the main ones being that quality can vary. If a print is really clear um, with no distortion, uh, then you would tend to need fewer points of similarity to reach that identification. But if it's blurry, distorted unclear in some way, then you would need more information to make that same determination. But also every point, I'm making air quotes here, isn't necessarily equal. If you have very specific discriminating minutia points or discriminating information to uh, compare, you would tend to need fewer than if you had just all generic uh, points. And I said, I'm you know, obviously not a firearms expert, but I'm sure it's the same way with, you know, obviously you know, huge differences, but at least in the concept, the same way for firearms. Yes, uh, that you, I mean, exactly. It's the it's the, the, the common problem with all of the well, actually, with any discipline that doesn't right, necessarily have a threshold. And- right. You know, how how yeah. much is is enough to to be satisfied that you have, quote unquote, a match. Um with when with respect to firearms um besides the like you said the holistic quantitative qualitative approach they did toy around with a particular model that was not too dissimilar to our point co- counting approach or numerical thresholds they have what's called the cms approach uh consecutive matching striations uh this i think gained some ground more in california in the united states and west coast and it was proposed essentially that you would need X number of matching consecutive striations in order to determine 
it was an identification. So I believe eight off the, just off the top, top of my head, I think eight was the proposed uh, number, which again, similar to fingerprints, eight points would be an identification, you know, or would justify an identification, eight consecutively matching striations would justify the identification. Uh, very similar to fingerprints, firearms examiners had difficulty with this if they were more traditional and like the holistic approach. Uh, it wouldn't work for, for certain kinds of uh, tool mark evidence like compression marks where you're looking at the outlines of tools as opposed to striations, you know, and that sort of thing. So uh, it, it had its uh, pros and cons and detractors and supporters. Um, it was a bit controversial. There various research that was done with it, um, but ultimately it uh, it came down to like you said, there isn't necessarily a set standard, which is one of the reasons, like our like the discipline of fingerprints, it was criticized so heavily in the NAS report. Did you get a chance to look at the the images too, the the, the matching bullets? I did, and actually, just from Jen's questions, uh, did a little kind of markup uh, of a non-expert markup but you know someone who knows more than i guess the average person saying okay th these this is the the markings of the lands and grooves like the, the kind of generic this type of you know um, of rifle fired this bullet and then these are the actual you know uh, striations that they're using to make the identification mm -hmm. um and just as a, not as a, hey, look, this is what they're actually looking at, but as a, just in general, this is what they're looking for, the kind of things that they're looking for. Right. And in general, my understanding from firearms examiners is that they really do almost always want to see the actual bullets right. to, to make the ID. Doing an ID just off of pictures of it. Um, makes seems to make them uncomfortable because uh, it, it, there's there's so much more you can see uh, when you kind of spin those bullets together underneath the uh, comparison microscope. Yeah, and and not only are they looking at the whether or not the striations match up and the the thickness, if you will, of the striations, um, but also the depth of the striations because that that matters because they're dealing with the three dimensional world, so the microscopic imperfections on the rifling that are causing those striations, that's the rifling inside the barrel of the gun, have depth to them. If it's a burr or something like that and it's causing scratches, the depth will be recorded within you know, the softer metal material, you know, lead or whatever it might be for the bullet. So, right. yeah, I mean, of course, it's, it's helpful to have it in a three-dimensional setting. But the images, I thought, were at least demonstrative and showed a number of matching striations. I've looked yeah. at probably hundreds of either bullet or um, uh, cartridge case comparisons, and you know I've seen textbook examples showing textbook identifications. I've seen really complicated ones with lots of differences and distortions. I, I like like you said, Eric. I'm not an expert in firearms. I'm not qualified to offer an opinion. So what I say is just as a layperson looking at it does not and this opinion doesn't reflect my employer past present or future that right. all those caveats just simply on the spectrum of what to me appears to be verse textbook versus the most complicated ones i've seen this is moderately 
you know, somewhere a little down the road a little bit. It's not certainly textbook, and it's not the most complicated I've ever seen. But it's also right. not the most obvious. It's just it's simply not the most obvious. It takes a little bit of time. They show three different images, uh, different areas of the bullet, highlighting, like you said, different lands and grooves. Um, and, you know, yeah, as Jan points out, she, as a layperson, noticed some differences uh, that not all of them line up. And again, if you ever see a textbook striations marking, I mean, you've got hundreds, if not thousands of microscopic lines right. that line up perfectly with pra- practically no differences. You don't have that here. Of course, there are differences, as we know, in fingerprints because you will have thing. You know, we have distortion. They have their own kinds of distortion that, of course, will happen. And the randomness of the, the striations being you know, placed on the bullet and what happens to that bullet as it's passing through objects and traveling before it hits its terminal destination and those kinds of things can all, of course, impact how it appears and will cause its distortions, just like in latent fingerprints. So, but, you know, in general, it, it, it's, uh, it's convincing enough to me to, to, to not question it. Um, right. you know, Jen had some other questions about, uh, I guess she works in the world of systems analysis. Right. Uh, so this was actually kind of an interesting uh, way of relating her field to forensics, uh, in uh, basically, when you uh, do a test like this, uh, if you test, uh, you know, to do a really proper test, you would want to look at you know what you, you know, if you have the match that matching uh, example, but also non-examples, so things that you know don't match. Um, basically, firing other tw- uh, twenty-two bullets from other twenty-two rifles, maybe even the same model. And seeing that that in fact they are different, mm-hmm. yeah. So, it, you know, my response to her was at least in the fingerprint world. You know, again, relating back to that as what I know most. Uh, we, you know, we kind of have that built in at least in fingerprints because every every finger that we ID, there's there's nine other fingers that don't match, and then most APHIS searches, you know, you're basically presented all with these non-examples or non-matching prints because most APHIS searches don't hit. Uh, so. It's not like that we have, we've built that in specifically, but that's just a part of the uh, the whole process that we work through. Uh, and that in firearms, it may not be quite the same as in fingerprint prints, but as an expert, you build up this experience of, I don't know, of looking at you know, the same kind of thing over and over again and uh, seeing enough of these, of these non-examples to get an idea of how much is enough to know that you're looking at a true match and not a uh, a, a uh, an unknown that just happens to closely resemble your your uh, your known sample. Right. So Jan's question to me, as you're pointing out, um, and and I actually think it's a it's a legitimate question that a layperson would ask. And I, I think it's easy for us to forget those kinds of things because it would be like a juror sitting there and going, okay, well, he's only shown me what a match looks like, but I see differences. How much 
how many differences does he need to know they're from different people? And you right. know, he's showing me the match and says it's the father, but he also said earlier that fingerprints are genetically related in some way. So did he compare the, the son's prints and the daughter's prints and the other, you know, per, did he compare all the other family members? Because he said that there could be this genetic, you know, thing where they might have similar pattern type. And so they might be sitting there going, well, I want to see the other ones to see how different they are so that they can – essentially it's about calibration. They, as a layperson, want to calibrate their brain to know right. how much is enough for the match and how much is enough for the difference and how similar would they look if you fired them from similar barrels or other 22s. That's where we, I think, as fingerprint people recognize without looking at the other 22 rifles that were fired there – we know that the firearms examiners don't need to see them either because they know that they will have enough differences that to them would be obvious. And in the in the theory and world of identification, I don't need to see the other people in the house. I don't need to see the other people on the planet to know no one else is going to have these features be as similar as this. I mean, that's the theory, ultimately. Right. It's right. it's. It's what we've been criticized for by NAS. It's what we've been criticized <laughs> by – and it's a legitimate criticism that, well, how could you know without looking? I mean, isn't it possible? And that's where it gets into that you know, really, I, I think, a wonderful area for discussion. Is that necessary to know? Do you, can you take it? Can, can you take it based on your experiences and your observations of past cases that you're simply – aren't going to find anyone else with similar enough similar features or more similar features than the one you're looking at right now that you've established the ID. And, and what what part of my response back to her uh, talked about, you know, in essence what this gets down to is how accurate are the examiners. But uh, but under a specific condition, under the condition this, where they might be looking at close non-matches or similar similarly produced evidence i mean that's that that's a really specific condition right so uh you know i mentioned some of the the i mentioned the the black box paper but then you know brought it and also actually the australian paper about how experts are way better than um than lay people Mm. at uh, of not making that error when the 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 pair the comparison pair are close non-matches but then I also, uh, I didn't actually cover the reference because I, I didn't have it with me, but there's a, a paper on the accuracy of firearms examiners, and it's actually looking at cartridge casings instead of bullet comparisons, but I just use it as an example, uh, where every cartridge case in the study was um, from the same uh, make and model of firearm. They basically just purchased for the study like 50 or 60 of these things. Um, and fired, you know, multiple rounds out of each one and gave the examples out to examiners across the country. And uh, uh, the false positive uh, error rate for the study was just over 1%, 1.01%. So that as an example of at least, you know, not being an expert in firearms, just the, the research that I'm aware of, of accuracy study done for firearms showing that similar to latent prints, there's a very low error rate uh, when you declare this identification and under those circumstances where, you know, you are using the same firearm, 
you know, basically made in the same batch because they're all purchased at the same time, theoretically, at least, um, to be able to recognize the differences between them and not mistakenly identify one of the cartridge casings. Yeah, that's that's that's, that's really useful data. Uh, just as another point too, I, I would I would tell Jan if an expert has demonstrated their expertise, if you will, they've been deemed competent through competency testing and appropriate training, etc. I'm willing to take on face value that they've gone through a special kind of calibration. And what I'm referring to is a, is a series of studies that was done by CAM, K-A-M, uh, yep. here in the United States for, at Drexel University with document examiners. And essentially, right, one of the, the most important findings in his study was when he gave um, matching handwriting samples uh, and non-matching handwriting samples and disguised handwriting samples where someone tried to, you know, uh, forge someone else's signature. Um, they uh, He gave them to experts and lay people. And when he, he did that, when they were from the same person, when the author was, you know, the author of the unknown and the, or the unknown and the known, the same author, turned out that the experts and the lay people had about the same accuracy rate. And a lot of critics took that to go, well, why do you even need an expert? You know, uh, clearly, you know, this isn't, there's no real expertise here if a lay person can be just as good as recognizing a match. The most important thing that was missed, though, and not discussed enough by those individuals, <laughs> was that when they were non-matching, when they were not from the same author, the lay people had something like a four to five or six times higher error rate because they could not essentially recognize the differences that the experts were able to identify. And that was what was key about that study. It was the experts who were very conservative when they saw differences, and to me that's a hallmark of expertise in pattern matching is to know when the differences are significant or not. That to me is what took a long time as a fingerprint examiner to develop my expertise knowing when the differences matter. Because from the get-go, you're making matches practically on day one, you're making identifications, but you're still not quite appreciating either how similar they can be from different people or how distorted they can be when they're from the same person. It's understanding when the differences matter. And Eric, I'm sure teaching the exclusion class, you can appreciate <laughs> just how important but yet subtle that point is. Absolutely. And that was one of the, that's one of the points I bring up every time I do the class is, um, is just what you said. You know, we get trained from day one how to call an ID, uh, but how to call an exclusion it isn't as structured or isn't as uh, understood uh, when we train, but that's an important part to um, to to gain that experience as well. And and you know, examiners have you know for all of the history of this field, you know, gained that experience to know when it's not you know enough to call it a match or when it's not a match. Um, the big difficulty is now is is this extra step of being able to call the exclusion and, uh, and you know, making sure that's done accurately. That's a whole, whole nother topic, but, yeah. um, and, and, I, and I'd say that in those images, those bullet images that we were talking about, while I can see the similarities and to my eye, yes, they look quote unquote matching to my layperson eye. 
I also see differences, but I don't know at all how to assign weight to them. I don't know what weight. I can only presume that the weight must have been insignificant because the expert did, in fact, declare the match, that the differences didn't come anywhere near to outweighing them, and they're within the range right. of expected differences one would observe between a questioned and a known. And that's the key. There's always going to be differences, but they have to be within the range of expected, normal, and acceptable differences. And that's what expertise determines. And that's, I didn't mention the name, but the Tangent paper from Australia mm -hmm. really showed that in fingerprints. Yes. That when they were um, matches that looked similar. Similar distractors, the, I think they called them. Uh, what, right, but when, the, when they were actually matches that looked similar, then the, the expert and the layperson basically were the same. Oh. And when they were non-matches that looked different, they were basically the same. I mean, it was it was like, okay, these... And that, that's, you know, to be expected, really. If you put something up that matches and it actually looks to be the same, the layperson's going to say, yep, that's, that's it, the same. And same thing for non-matches. But it was in those non-matches that actually looked the same that the latent expert um, had like a 0.6 error rate on those uh, and the um, the layperson had an error rate of 55%. Yeah, that's 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 very which telling. Is, which is worse than guessing, you know? Yeah, right. I mean, <laughs> they could have flipped a coin and got it right more of the time. Um, but that's, I mean, that's really where this, like you're saying, that's where, really where this expertise comes into play. Yeah. So I hope that so, helps Jan's question a little bit there. They're really good questions, and I can understand absolutely. why she would, I mean, if you will, as a, I'm picturing her as a skeptical juror, I mean, I think we should all pay attention. Those are the kinds of questions that a skeptic or a skeptical juror would want. Well, what did the what would the other ones look like? Can you show me examples? And that makes me think a little bit about the kinds of testimony and how I might present that for jurors. Should I show them really clear one, you know, clear matches, clear exclusions, show them some close non matches? Do you even go down that road to help sell, you know, sell the identification to essentially give them a few calibration points? You can't calibrate them in a few minutes, but if, if you give them a few reference points, does that help? Is that necessary? Is that overkill? Just made me think a little bit, and I, I just thought there was really, really insightful questions, you know, from a non-forensic practitioner. You know, what it's also making me think of is if, if Jan or any other non-experts that are out there listening, if there would be any kind of interest in in posting to like a, like a public uh, Google folder, Google Drive folder, just some like training comparisons you know some some ranging from super easy to maybe medium uh just in matches and non-matches um but just to be like all right here here's just some unmarked images go ahead and and then the marked version to you know to kind of grade themselves i wondered how many people out there would be interested in just kind of playing around and and doing comparisons on their own um it's something that we do for the uh, attorneys that come to the Forensic Science Academy, the advanced course uh, here in the Phoenix area, um, is, you know, this is basically, they've, they've wanted to come back a second time to get even more uh, information about forensic stuff. So I said, all right, here you go. You know, you've, we've heard us talk about it for a while this afternoon. Um, go ahead and give it a shot. And, uh, you know, some people 
in the in that class just kind of sit back and aren't interested and some people are like okay we'll go give it a shot and here's this matching and this matching and then they kind of give their conclusion uh, at the end so that's fun um yeah anyway if anyone out there listening is interested in that let us know maybe we'll throw together some examples find something that we can actually you know post publicly online that's old enough or i don't know or just made up ourselves of people of volunteers that are that are, are that don't have any kind of hinkiness about putting their fingerprints online um and uh and do something like that <laughs> but um speaking of uh non-experts doing comparisons mm. we, we got another email <laughs> um so uh, this was uh, so I guess uh, Jan had posted uh, on, um, I guess there's a, a Reddit, a subreddit uh, of making a murderer. For those out there that are just kind of barely getting the podcast to work and, and have, are saying, what's a subreddit? Okay, so Reddit is R-E-D-D-I-T. It's a, um, it's a website where you just basically post things that you've seen online, but it's also grown into a big discussion forum for basically anything. So there is a discussion forum on the Making a Murderer show, and uh, people can kind of discuss things on there. And instead of like a normal message board, like maybe you're familiar with the CLPEX uh, message board, where you just it just lists all the things in order of the people that post it, uh, this one, the users can vote whether or not it's a good comment or not, uh, and any replies to a comment give also give make it score points so the the most interesting or most commented on comments kind of rise to the top it's kind of a way to filter out all the noise of meaningless comments and emphasize the uh, the good comments on this particular topic so this is really popular on the internet and it's sometimes a way just to say hey look i read this or i read it on the internet so instead of doing a search to find something this is kind of the reverse of that where you post this is what i found on this topic anyway all right lesson about what reddit is over um <laughs> tell us about twitter grandpa ray <laughs> um I, I just know that there's some people out there that have, have never really heard of reddit and have no idea what this is um, <laughs> i know i'm deep. so anyway <laughs> i still don't fully understand twitter even though i'm on it now but whatever so there's a this, this this message board for making a murderer. So uh, I guess recently Jan posted uh, on this uh, this Reddit uh, uh, forum, and some another reader from Reddit uh, emailed uh, me, and I forwarded it on to Glenn as well, uh, with a couple slides from a like an online PowerPoint presentation, uh, asking, "Do you see what I see?" Um, so. Yeah, my, my first thought was to the little drummer boy and stuff. But anyway, <laughs> it's uh, it's a picture of um, the the back of the cell phone that was burned in the fire, and a close up of uh, Stephen Avery's fingers uh, from uh, some photo uh, taken uh, you know, after he was arrested. And I was looking, looking, looking. I I really didn't see like I don't think so because I don't really see anything in these in these pictures. Uh, Glenn, did you well, let, pop yeah, out at you? Let, let, well, let's let's describe it. I mean, first of all, okay. let's. Do you want to? I don't know how you could give share this with listeners so they can go and and see this themselves because they really well, you really have to see it for yourself. But that's true. Um, 
if you do a search for, here's what I search for, scars, Stephen Avery, finger, phone. So those are the words I searched for. Um, then some of the first responses are from Reddit. Um, and they talk about the cuts and thumbprints or fingerprints on the victim's phone. And you can kind of go from there uh, to find out more and more information. But okay. uh, again, scar, Stephen Avery, finger, phone are the, the words I search for in, for in Google. All right. So on the faceplate, there is a blob, in the, a dark blob in the photos. And that, there's no rich detail whatsoever. That's the first that's the first thing. The second thing is it's so zoomed in and pixelated that there's not much resolution in the image. Um, so you're looking at a pixelated, dark blob that is oval in shape and roughly about the size of a fingerprint, roughly. Um, Maybe. Yeah, ish. And shaped roughly like a fingerprint in that it's oval. Um, but it could also be a burn of some kind. It could be lots of other things, discoloration. It's not, there is not a single ounce of ridge detail at all in it. But in the photos, they show these little, it's all dark, and then there are these little defects, these voids, these light voids, you know, um, just areas where it's not dark, and they're tiny little, they almost look like little lines. In fact, yeah, they look like little creases, except there's no ridge detail. So it would be very surprising to me to have a fingerprint with no ridge detail at all visible, but then to be able to see what they're pointing to scars. He, they're showing an inked fingerprint, and um, it's well, not Stephen Avery's. It's just a mock. Um, right. Right. And they've got lines that he's showing are scars, but they're not scars. They are they're creases. creases. They're clearly creases. So what he's got, then it goes on further to show the images of Stephen Avery's fingers where there are these little cuts and cuts on the fingers, not creases, but cuts. And, and they're in a position that it would be somewhat similar to where they would be in the oval. You really have to see the side by side. It's an amazing stretch. I, 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 I don't, I don't see it. Um, I can't say that it isn't definitively because there's simply it's it's a wash. There's no information one way or the other that says that that truly could be a finger impression. It it it's just a mark. It's a black blob. Well, and that as you said the stretch, and and I think that's a good word because um, that's one of the things I noticed right away is is I didn't I didn't see any attempt to scale these images to the same size. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, again, there's in the original photos there are scales in both of them, so that may have been done, but I, I'm I actually kind of doubt that it was. Uh, secondly, I'm just noticing this now. I didn't actually put this in my response, but uh, we're looking at a photo of Stephen Avery's finger compared to a uh, an impression on the phone, uh, and uh, generally you you need those. Uh, you need one of them to be inverted left to right mm -hmm. uh, in order to match up because, uh, you know, it, it's going to be kind of reverse image if you leave an impression versus if you just look at the finger and take a photo of it. Right. Um, you know, but then again, just for looking at a couple little uh, tiny marks, 
that may or may not be scars uh, in either image. Uh, you know, maybe the the uh, left-right reversal doesn't really matter a whole lot. I'd be a whole lot more concerned about the calibration of the images to the same size. But uh, I mean, that's getting into the the weeds of even if you're willing to accept that this is enough information to actually do anything with, which I, I, it's like you're saying, it's just not. It's it's just not enough information to say anything either way. You know what? Now that I'm looking at the photos, uh, you know, <laughs> it, it can't be. It's it's impossible because if you look at the photos, it, correct me if I'm wrong, Eric, but isn't the the scars, the cuts on as I'm looking at my hand, essentially it's on the left side of the finger, right? The le- yes, it's on the left side of the finger. So if you make right. an impression. In that orientation, is it yep. not on the wrong side of the finger in the impression? It, it totally is. Because it's it would be a reversal. Yep. So, no. I mean... Uh, it's just... Yeah. <laughs> you, okay. All right. There you go. No. So no. There's, there's, there's no way to tell whether or not that blob is from Stephen Avery's finger. Right. Um, but the evidence that they're pointing to to suggest that it is, is, is not would mean that it's not that finger right because as everyone knows when you look at your hand wherever anything is on your hand when you touch the image to leave the impression it reverses it's a reversal right 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 okay well there we go well well, maybe we can get on reddit afterwards and just say uh, yep no (laughs) myth debunked (laughs) myth busted there we go there we go i wish there were more fingerprint myths to to bust uh, Mythbusters kind of, you know, did an episode on it, and that's I'm not sure if there's any other ones to, <laughs> to bust. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, check out the images though. It's 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 good. It's, yeah. it's creative. It's very. And what I'm impressed, well, impressed and or horrified that people have so much time to go through with such <laughs> scrutiny on every. It's it's cra- It really is crazy. But that. But then I think this is also the effect of having, like Jan had mentioned, crowdsourcing the crime when you've got so many different eyeballs on it, so many different theories. But I think again, good science will dispel many of those. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I, if you're interested at all, you got to take a look at those photos and see what they were suggesting was a fingerprint on the the faceplate of the phone. Yeah, it's something else. So uh, if anyone out there from Reddit um, or the original creator of this PowerPoint, uh, you know, is listening, again, we I think we're on the same side of thinking in in general, just from you know, our opinion that Stephen Avery uh, is guilty of being involved in this at, su- at some level. However, this is not the magic bullet, so to speak, uh, to, to you know, definitively prove his guilt that the uh, forensic scientists and the prosecutors just totally missed. This is just a blob on a phone. All right, I think that brings uh, this episode to an end. Um, another episode on Making a Murderer. Uh, I actually thought that this was... <laughs> Actually, only take a few minutes to go through, but we ended up doing another whole episode on it. Uh, but we promised more fingerprint stuff for our uh, experts here uh, next week. And uh, you can always listen to us every week on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or on iTunes. And uh, keep emailing us at eric at rayforensics.com or glenn at eliteforensicservices.com. And we'll see you guys next time. Bye, everybody. Have a good week. Hashtag help Eric understand Twitter.
music provided on this podcast by Mevio's Music Alley. Check it out at music.mevio.com.